This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Throughout the world, hurricanes, drought, and sea level rise are hitting people where they live. In Africa and the Middle East, people are being driven from their homes by political and economic upheaval amplified by the changing climate. Before the Syrian war, there's seven years of a draw. Many people think that also contribute to the uprivals in that nation. That's artist and human rights activist Ai Weiwei. In his new film, Human Flow, Ai documents the plight of refugees struggling in a hot and crowded world. Later, we'll hear about using music to convey emotional urgency around climate disruption. As an artist, uh, I wanted to try to find ways to use art to make it less abstract. Art, freedom, and people on the move. Up next on Climate One. How can art help us understand the human costs of climate change? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Ai Weiwei spent much of his childhood living in political exile with his family in Xinjiang. When the Cultural Revolution ended, the family returned to Beijing. During his 20s, I lived in the United States, where he was exposed to the work of artists such as Marcel Duchamp and Andy Warhol, befriended poet Allen Ginsberg, and earned a reputation as a top-tier professional blackjack player. He gained artistic success and international recognition for using his art and social media to comment on politics. This led to his arrest and detention by the Chinese authorities. I now lives in Berlin and travels the world pursuing his art and his activism. I recently spoke with Greg Dalton about his latest project, Human Flow, a film documenting human migration and the refugee crisis. Let's begin with, uh, with your dad and the story of your dad and how that kind of comes to the, the film. Uh, your dad was the uh, renowned uh, Chinese poet Ai Ching, who joined the Chinese Communist Party and was sent down to the countryside uh, for a long time where he was, had to you know, clean toilets. So tell us how that uh, shaped your empathy for what the film's about. How did that... Well, I, I, the year I was born, which is 1957, um, my father was exiled. Um, so we are, as a whole family, being sent to the most remote area, very far from the Beijing, Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. the, the far west. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, as far as you can get. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit further would be Russian or Pakistan, you know. So we'll talk about another story. Then, <clears throat> so I grew up in this uh, very uh, extremely harsh condition. You know, my father be considered as anti-revolution, and uh, and in that society, that's the the, the worst crime you can commit is uh, anti-revolution. So I, since I was. Uh, very young, I experienced all those uh, uh, very harsh political conditions like uh, humiliation or the discriminations, all those. Uh, and uh, basically, we, we have to live uh, a whole underground 
So to tell the condition, yeah, it's, uh, fortunately, the, this Gobi Desert is not so much, uh, much raining in the summer, you know. So, so, so that make me much easier to approach uh, this film, Human Flow, and uh, to, to see this uh, human tragedy as a part of um, my my condition, you know, it's uh, I, I I feel there's uh, some connections in there. You know, the people today with uh, 65 million people being forced out of their home, there's no single one which which is willing to to leave their home to give up their their land, but. Uh, with uh, hundreds of thousand people uh, uh, killed in this kind of dramatic war in or in famine, in environmental problems, they have to leave. So, I think it's a it's global situation. It's a, it can happen to almost like anywhere, and uh, and really. Uh, uh, testing our uh, our humanity and uh, especially to to the people who is privileged and uh, to to challenge our understanding about uh, human condition. So, do you feel a, a responsibility to bring this story to people who are comfortable and privileged? I first, it's my personal journey. I want to understand the situation. I think. Uh, to really draw any kind of conclusion first, you need to be conscious and to know what is really going on. And the sense, the sense, um, the sense looks very complicated in many, many issues uh, are very different. You know, some are more historical, some are religious problems, some are just current regional conflicts. But what come to uh, uh, the conclusion after I going through this one years of uh, uh, filming. We went through about 23 nations, 40 camps. I interviewed about 600 people, come out uh, uh, around 900 hours of uh, footage. So then gradually you see even the conditions are very different, but they basically are the same. They are, they are being forced out from their, their, their original home and uh, have nowhere to go. And uh, some, very small, small uh, proportion, um, about less than, about a few percent uh, of the people uh, come to Europe, uh, which already made a, a, a big, a big uh, uh, problem in Europe. And, uh, and I, I'm settling in Germany now, in Berlin. So in Berlin, uh, German already take uh, over one million of refugees. But most of them are st um, still in camps after two years uh, or one, two years being in Germany. It seems uh, it's very difficult for any of them really to be integrated into the society. You know, only a very small portion, maybe three percent, people has been really um, settled some in some way. The rest uh, would stay in, in the camp, 
and uh, which is a very um, harsh condition to think about. Uh, um, Europe is a, it's a, a society which has plenty of uh, uh, resource or to, to helping those people, but uh, it's very, the opinion is very divided, you know, it's, uh, um, and the policy also changing. You know, many refugees have been uh, sent back to the very difficult areas such as uh, Afghanistan or, or and, uh, some other places. You make a point in the film that the refugee convention was born in Europe, and you seem to really pressure Europe to sort of rise up to that legacy of obviously coming out of World War II. Uh, what do you think Europe should do? I think it's, a, it's not matter just Europe. I think we have to uh, see it as a, a global uh, problem. And uh, of course, uh, Europe is, uh, you know, is close to Syria and uh, also the, the Africa refugees come to Italy. So naturally, those people can, can reach the border there. But this situation is really a global situation because if we see what costs those refugees, is, uh, you know, many refugees come from Iraq, you know, even the extreme um, groups uh, created by Iraq war, and which U.S. is deeply involved, and uh, Afghanistan war, and uh, you know also many many other uh, locations, um, and Myanmar. You know uh, what happened in Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar now. Uh, and that's changed the politics in Europe. Some of the, the Brexit, you know, uh, recently the elections in, in Germany, your adopted country, where the, the right came up. Can you understand those people who feel threatened or I, by so, so many refugees? I think, um, I think there's uh, several layers of the problem. First, those nations do have this kind of rightist or even some uh, really... They have these roots, you know. This dust always there. It's just being started, uh, stirred, and uh, it come to the surface. You know, it's deeply have those uh, those kind of tendency and uh, roots in in Germany, especially, and in many many nations. You know, we 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 cannot forget what happened a few decades ago. You know, it's, it's, as human being, nothing can just disappear as. Uh, uh, you know, so when things getting difficult, politicians always use this kind of, uh, to gain the uh, popular votes. You know, this is uh, obviously, and uh, same as uh, in U.S. You know, if you see the policies happening uh, in U.S., which is also uh, quite shocking if you think uh, the policy to reduce the acceptance of refugees to such a small uh, number, you know, even in the previous uh, administration, it's not high that, the, you know, to, to compare to other nations' uh, sharing of refugees. But now it's getting extremely low. And uh, also, in many cases, uh, to, to set up this kind of traveling ban or to even to have this intention to move away the people already, some are born in here, some are, you know, for, have been here for 
decades to send them back or send them away. I think this is a strong uh, trend to, for violating those uh, human rights um, uh, beliefs or the values, which is most important values for, for to create this nation because we all children of immigrants or refugees uh, in just some decades ago. So that's really challenges this society to see the most powerful society, most uh, privileged society, and not bearing the responsibility and, uh, and it's shying away from uh, defending human condition and human rights. That only means the society uh, become uh, um, less uh, courage, uh, no vision, and, uh, and the lacking uh, of a responsibility. And uh, how can this kind of society leading our world and uh, to, 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 to change, to make the positive change for this uh, very crucial time? Climate change makes a lot of the conditions uh, that drive refugees from their homes worse, drought, famine. Uh, the drought in Syria has been identified as a contributor to accelerating or, or amplifying that civil war in Syria that sent refugees into Europe. What are the climate impacts that you see that, that underlie this mass movement of people? I think... Uh, um, before the uh, Syrian war, there's uh, seven years of a drought, uh, you know, which also uh, many people think that also contribute to the uh, uprivals uh, in that nation. And uh, if you talk about uh, Bangladesh and uh, and uh, the flooding in, in that area, and also uh, like you know, it's about the same time as uh, Houston's flooding, but. Only difference is uh, we see our our press, you know, always focus on Houston, uh, which I believe uh, there's not human casualties, but Bangladesh have over thousand people uh, lost their life, but um, almost nobody talk about it. So you can see uh, this is uh, very common if we 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 see life or 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 property of life or or those are being treated uh, very differently in the uh, or media or in or uh, or public attention. Then you see the world is uh, is really divided. It's divided because that's against our notion about human are created equal. And uh, if we accept that condition, the world is life has different values or divided then many things uh, much bad can happen. You know, that's predictable. But isn't that uh, natural, the way uh, humans evolve to think about their clan or their tribe, that empathy is dilutes with distance, that people, the further something or someone is away from a person, they have less empathy. Is that normal, or do you think that that's... It is normal. It's, um, it's, uh, it's part of our humanity just to not to care about uh, others, but also it's uh, 
from the ancient time, this is also uh, part of a concerns of, of early philosophy to to think a human as one, humanity as one, you know, human rights as as one. If someone's rights being violated, and uh, we all get hurt. If we don't have this kind of understanding, the problem is, uh, you know, we someday we all can be get hurt and because uh, the, the, if we only have for this kind of how do you see the the visual condition uh, to see us as uh, one family or one uh, which are, are so closely associated then then we can have our empathies uh, and we can come out with some kind of solutions You're listening to a Climate One conversation with artist and filmmaker Ai Weiwei. His film, Human Flow, depicts the plight of refugees fleeing political and economic upheaval. Lurking behind the flood of refugees from Syria, Niger, and other countries are droughts, desertification, and other factors amplified by the changing climate. Let's continue with their conversation about art, activism, and freedom. In 2011, the Chinese government detained Ai Weiwei for 81 days. Here's coverage from ABC's Nightline about his ordeal. The confrontation brewing between Weiwei and the government finally reached a dangerous tipping point in April 2011, when he was taken into secret detention by Chinese authorities. An international outcry erupted for his release, but the government accused him of pornography and tax evasion and held him for 81 days. When he was finally released, he was shaken. Sorry, I can't. You can't talk. You're not allowed to talk. I'm on probation. That was Ai Weiwei on Nightline saying he's on probation after being released. How does that make you, take you back to that moment when you were in detention, you came out, your father uh, gained notoriety after he had been, been detained. So how was that for you to come out of that detention experience? Well, I used to jealous about my father for only one thing is he has been put in jail for years, and I I, I thought that would never it would never happen to me. I would don't have this kind of privilege. <laughs> As, uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know enemy of state. It's not uh, easy to to become. <laughs> yeah, as such a powerful state is, and. Uh, but uh, suppressingly, it, it, it become a, a reality. I, I, I wouldn't believe I was kidnapped uh, you know, from the airport, being put on this uh, black hole and taken to a location nobody knows where. It's kind of like a military base, secret. And, uh, and even soldiers serving that uh, location doesn't know where they are. You know, they also being and join the army, putting a sealed van and taken to that location. And uh, of course, in China, you, you cannot talk to a lawyer or your family doesn't know where you are. And you know, it's like you you dropped into a black hole and totally cut it off from any reality. You don't know uh, if people really care about their disappearance or uh, just simply know anything, doesn't know anything about the law side. And uh, that kind of tactics are really working. Uh, I think any human being being put in this kind of uh, situation would uh, 
I would have uh, gradually have a very different uh, understanding about your relations to the world. And, uh, you know, I think the power uh, very clearly trying to tell you is uh, you are very vulnerable, they are ruthless, and, uh, you know, they don't have to follow the law, and this nothing can stop them if they want to do something. You challenge power, the, the, the concentration of power in the Communist Party in China, and yet you were called at one point the most powerful artist in the world. So how do you think about your own power? Uh, my power. I, I, it's very uh, funny. You know, at the last moment before they give back my passport, that means I can freely travel. They sincerely sit down with me. You know, I talk about secret police. He said, I will wait, you know, we, we have been, uh, know each other for so long. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very, it's just like an anchor, or, or, you know. And uh, yeah, it's very human, very, you know, you start to like them because they are really talking in, in very human language. He said, uh, uh, tell me uh, the truth. Uh, many people said you become so uh, well-known only because, because us. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I said to them, I said, yes, it takes a very powerful nation to create a great artist. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, sincerely, I said, if without your you know, uh, effort, I would never become I will today. We're talking today with the artist and activist Ai Weiwei. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm, first part, I'm going to ask Ai Weiwei, uh, just mention a name and ask him to say the first thing that comes into uh, your mind unfiltered, which I think is <laughs> huh. kind of the way you roll. So um, <laughs> um, first one is Mao Zedong. Uh, you don't have a time like a clock. <laughs> So, does anybody know Mao Zedong here? <laughs> yes, uh, well, he's, uh, I should say, the last emperor of China, you know, he's... Uh, okay. Andy Warhol. Uh, I wouldn't say he's my lover, because uh, uh, he's someone, I think, represented uh, uh, U.S. culture. Blackjack. It's a game I, I used to play in Trump's, uh, uh, how Taj Mahal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I lost a lot of money there. So you donated to Donald Trump, okay. <laughs> um, true or false, art can be intimidating. Uh, yes, art is um, quite, uh, very often it's very fragile. True or false, cats can open doors. Yes, my cats. <laughs> Last question, but they never close them. That's also true. <laughs> All right, let's give him a round. Ai Weiwei, for getting through the lightning round. Lots, lots of cats in your life. Let's talk about China's progress, because you've been very critical about human rights in, in China. I lived in China in the late 1980s uh, as a student and a journalist, and go back now. There's been tremendous economic material progress. Your thoughts, Ai Weiwei, on China's progress, uh, 
you came I, out I, just after the, the opening reforms after the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, I think China made a tremendous progress, uh, and this progress is is a huge contribution to the world civilization. I mean, past thirty years, China come from a society almost like North Korea today, or even worse, and uh, yeah, and uh, become a, a state which is uh, quite economically powerful, and uh, almost no famine in China, which the 1.3 billion people from very, very, you know, bad condition, and, uh, and China still, uh, uh, still plays an important role in world politics, so that's the progress side. And there's been a great environmental cost of that progress. There's a term environmental refugees, people who want to leave Beijing and other cities it's, so it's, because it's so polluted. So address the environmental dark side of that progress. I think uh, to, to have this uh, uh, race of China, this many, many um, dark side, of course, the environmental problem uh, which China sacrificed uh, to just to make anything which nowhere want to make the you know for for to for this profit or to become uh, you know to make this uh, competition they would do it and uh, so they pollute their air river you know all those uh, uh, every possible um, conditions and they will leave a a big scar on, on, on China, maybe permanently, because uh, uh, so many issues uh, in relating to this uh, environmental problem. And uh, besides that, there's a uh, huge corruption and, uh, and, uh, and, and tremendous problems uh, in relating to education and, uh, and also the society uh, even become very rich, uh, still the power never solved the problem of um, to be legit, legitimate uh, power because it's not elected power. And the internal struggle between uh, inside the party is always uh, there. And, uh, and the people, uh, uh, there's no citizens because you don't. If you don't vote, you have no voice. You don't bear any responsibility. So there's no trust in that society, and uh, so those problems can never be solved. And also, there's no real creativity. You know, whatever they do is copying the West, or you know, and uh, it's very hard to have any real creativity because there's no encouragement of individualism, no freedom, no freedom of speech. So, so when those things are lacking, the society doesn't have a creativity. We're talking with artists and activists Ai Weiwei at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about some of your installations. You've used life vests and wrapped them around columns in Berlin, thermal blankets to wrap around your art. Uh, a la the laundromat exhibition, you took refugee cast-offs and then pressed and cleaned them and gave them new dignity. So how can art convey the importance of something like refugee crisis? I believe uh, the consciousness or is very important. Uh, only by informed 
and we can really take some kind of action. We, we can make our judgment. And uh, so as an artist, I, I first need to convince myself, that's why I got involved, to make those films and to, to go to those locations. And uh, I have to be totally convinced of what I'm doing. And at the same time, I create some works in dealing with museums or public art. Uh, certainly there's a large demand on that. So I, I put my, uh, my works into my museum shows. And uh, in past year, at least I have uh, about 10 or more museum shows. And, uh, and in each of them, I integrate works uh, in relating to refugee condition. It's only trying to, to, um, to show the people what I have been involved with. And uh, to what degree it can affect others, I, I, I don't have the idea. So. We're talking with the artist and activist Ai Weiwei at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our audience questions. And the first question is... After 30 years of economic and material gains in China, but with the conditions of the Communist Party, no elections, no freedom of speech, how long do you think it can continue? For my uh, prediction, I made a prediction six years ago. I said that, well... We all ended in three years, so that means we passed my prediction <laughs> two years. You know, so essentially you cannot trust uh, uh, someone from the left, you know. <laughs> yes, next one. Hey, ni hao. Xie ni. So I really thank you for everything that you have done in your life. And one thing I think you should talk about is your soul, because I have friends in China and they're telling me everyone is in this mad commercial rush to buy and sell and get things. Um, I don't know how they resolve, if ever, the contradictions of that society. And I don't know if you still have family there. So how do you communicate with them? And are you allowed with a passport to go back and forth? I don't think you are yet, are you? Thank you. So first, uh, I think you speak a very good uh, Japanese. <laughs> uh, second, uh, about Seoul, I think I should leave that for Dalai Lama, because otherwise he would have nothing to do. Uh, so. The materialism of China, they've become so rich so fast. Have they lost something? I don't, I don't really, I don't think that's a problem. I think the problem is the, still the, is the, the communist revolution. When they, that's, that's a true problem, when they killed all those landlords and uh, make the whole society, uh, what carries the culture used to be those landlords, you know. The people of uh, the farmers doesn't really uh, know the culture and uh, basically is a feudalistic society. All those landlords or rich people carries the culture. So when they completely have this kind of um, this kind of very brutal revolution, just kill all of them. 
that stopped the culture for 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 a while, and then later, of course, this uh, communist society has a uh, to to taking all the prop uh, private properties, which also um, can cause a, a tremendous uh, problem for the society because once you don't have any property, you will not really. Um, care or build anything because you don't have anything to give to your children. And those things uh, have a much bigger impact on China still, impacts China. China still cannot solve those problems. And even today, people getting rich, it's, uh, it's only very uh, restricted uh, condition because uh, um, you never know and because the party encourage you to get rich, you know, so most people get rich either uh, they they're benefit from the policy, and uh, of course they also can be arrested for cor corruption because anybody related to the party would uh, first get uh, the benefit from this uh, uh, become rich, you know. And uh, also, if you are out of the outside of the system, that's even in uh, you know, so-called independent uh, 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 entrepreneur, then that's even more dangerous because the party can get on you anytime. So this is a society, if you don't have uh, an independent legal system, so uh, which put everybody in danger. And that's why, uh, you know, so many uh, rich Chinese moved out to California. <laughs> and uh, yes, and uh, certainly in the past few years, we have a much better Chinese restaurant than ever. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, 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 people buying real estate, and uh, you know, which benefits here. So, let's go to our next question for Ai Weiwei. I'm curious uh, why you, what attracted you to settle into Berlin, and under <laughs> what conditions would you return to China? Uh, for years, I don't have a chance to travel, and suddenly they give back my passport. And uh, still, I don't know. I feel very lucky. I, I, I do have the chance, or they're being soft on me. And uh, the question why I have to go to Germany, I tell you a story. I, right, before, right after I got my passport, the American embassy called me. said, please come over. I said, OK, you know, the next day I will leave. So I walked into the, the embassy, the ambassador, he's a very respected man, and uh, he asked me, why you go to Germany? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know, Germany had made a tremendous effort. You know, the Moker is, uh, is you know, those politicians from Germany, they are, they're very uh, stubborn. <laughs> they keep asking Chinese authorities why you don't let this guy go. You know, he he has already been uh, giving a professorship in in Berlin. Why he cannot come to teach? So that made the uh, Chinese government uh, uh, quite embarrassed. <coughs> But of course, they are they also more stubborn than Germans. <laughs> so even before Germans uh, asked them, they said, uh-uh, we know you're going to ask about Ai Weiwei. 
you know, but they have a lot of deals, business deals, you know, so it's to both benefit, uh, it's better to release me. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, that's what, how I understand. You've been listening to a conversation with Chinese artist and human rights activist Ai Weiwei. His new film is called Human Flow. When we come back, we'll turn to another art form being used to connect human emotions and climate disruption. Musicians and scientists in California are collaborating on a time machine that helps people hear and feel what the climate sounded like when the Industrial Revolution began. It was a lot calmer and quieter, with all that coal and oil energy still sleeping in the ground. They also take people into the future, when the release of carbon pollution into the air creates unsettling and chaotic sounds, evoking images of hurricanes, floods, fires, and other climate-driven extreme events. The Climate Music Project performs before live audiences. Scientific charts of temperature and carbon concentration pulsate on huge screens above the musicians. Bill Collins is a scientific advisor and head of the climate division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Artist Stefan Crawford founded and leads the group. Here's Stefan Crawford. I think for too many people, climate change, the issue of climate change is still uh, an abstract concept. And the idea was, as an artist, uh, I wanted to try to find ways to use art to make it less abstract. We're trying to make people be aware of the urgency of action on climate change. And I think there, there is a hopeful message there, and the hopeful message, and Bill, I'm sure, will address this, is that there's still a window of opportunity to act to have a better outcome than if we do nothing today. Uh, and Bill, you spend a lot of time with computer models looking at the future, a very uh, sophisticated, uh, quantitative. What made you want to get involved and connect music to climate science and data? It had become clear to me that scientists needed other channels of communication around climate science. We needed to not only convey the science accurately, but also convey really what it meant and, and what it means on a, more than just an intellectual level. And that's what led me to seek other forms of expression besides the usual ones that I employ in my daily work. So there's hope here. We can make a better planet, build a better economy. <clears throat> it's not all just downside and risk. Uh, people who looked at this problem very seriously have shown that that's, in fact, possible, that we can mitigate climate change uh, maintain a highly developed, in fact, even more developed uh, way of life, but restore some balance in the way that we interact with our natural surroundings. And also really get at some of the, the roots of uh, increasing poverty that's associated with resource contention, and some of which is coming about directly because of climate change. So this really could be a win-win-win situation if we start to address it soon. Stefan Crawford, you got together some composers. You have Bill as your science mm -hmm. advisor, and you compose some music. So tell us how the music conveys these scientific uh, principles. Well, music is a universal language, and in this particular case, we, we have our first, we've been performing our first piece for the last two years now. And the first piece is called Climate. The composer is Eric Ian Walker. 
That piece uh, basically spans about 300 years, uh, so it looks back into the climate's past, the present, and then it, it looks at two scenarios moving into the future. And over that arc, which is about a 30-minute arc, so every, every, every minute is about 25 years in the climate system. So what's, what's, what's beautiful is that with using music as an analogy is it's almost like a time machine. How else can you take an audience today, show them what the past was like, take them to the present, and then into the future to show them different possibilities of what the future could look like and then bring them back to the future in time still to act. And that's what the piece does. The piece uses a, a technique called parameter mapping, which is where you, you identify variables in the climate system that you want to model, and then you assign musical analogs to those, to those variables, and that's how the music plays out, essentially. So you're taking us into the future through music, and you're giving us one scenario, which is business as usual. That's right. And another scenario is, which is we w heed the, the warnings, the flashing red lights that, that uh, scientists are telling us, and that's another sound and another future. Okay, so that's we're right. wrapping the future. Well, let's hear some of the, one of those futures from the Climate Music Project. This is the early 20th century, actually. So this is when the automobiles being invented and electricity just and it's just starting. So the industrial economy as we know it is just beginning. That's right, yes. Pretty calm music, I say. Pretty calm music, but the, the, the composer, through the course of the 20th century, in this particular piece, carbon dioxide is control, or actually controls the tempo of the piece. So as more carbon dioxide is emitted, the tempo increases. And then the four, the four variables, and Billy, you might want to add some, add some detail here. The four variables were carbon dioxide, uh, near-Earth surface temperature, uh, Earth energy balance, and then ocean pH were the four, were the four, four variables. And so the tempo is controlled by carbon dioxide. Pitch is controlled by the um, uh, uh, temperature. And then uh, Earth energy balance controls distortion in the music. And then the overall form of the piece is controlled by the ocean pH. And so as, as the 20th century uh, progresses and CO2 rises in the atmosphere, the, the, the tempo of the music picks up, and that in turn then affects both the pitch and the, and the level of distortion. So as long as the, as the variables are relatively uh, flat and not, not static, then the music sounds like music. As they change and become more dynamic, the music also becomes more dynamic. And Bill Collins, tell me, if I'm an average citizen, why I should care about earth energy balance or pH balance. How do those things affect average people? Sure. So the, we chose those four because they're all interconnected. And uh, as you increase carbon dioxide, you make the Earth's atmosphere act more like a, um, uh, like a heat blanket. And that shows up in the energy balance. It drives the Earth's system out of balance. And in fact, there's a net input of energy into the system, which causes it to warm. So you sort of connect from carbon dioxide to a positive energy balance to increasing temperature. That's a chain of ca causality that connects all those three. And energy and the, balance, is that the energy coming from the sun that, that it stays in? No, the sun's, uh, in, sun's insulation or the amount of energy we're getting from the sun is more or less staying the same. What's happening is that we're reducing the amount of heat that we're radiating to space. It's sort of as if you put on a, a thicker and thicker coat, and so you're losing less heat to your environment. At some point, you've put on too many coats. And the, the pH of the ocean is really very critical 
uh, because of its impact on the web of life in the ocean. Uh, the most simple organisms in the ocean that form the bottom of the food chain for all of oceanic life, uh, many of them have, uh, they're like ants, they have exoskeletons or hard outsides that are made of substances that dissolve when the ocean becomes more acidic. Making the ocean uh, pH change means, in English, making the ocean more acidic. As you make the ocean more acidic, it becomes harder for those very simple organisms that form the bottom of the food chain to survive. Once you make it harder for them to survive, you have ripple effects on the entire rest of the food chain, including you know, all the way up to the sushi that you're eating in a market. So those, those impacts uh, have very... Uh, the ocean pH has very big impacts on food chains that we care deeply about. So we have those four factors, and you're conveying them musically. Mm -hmm. And we, we heard the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Can you play us 2017? So let me, yeah, let me play this next clip, which will be, um, it starts in 1960, but I can, I can fast forward it. It goes to about 2025. We're going to play the whole thing, but it's, you can already hear it sounds much different. You can hear that distortion starting, and you can also hear the tempo increasing. It's faster. It's faster. And but this, is, this is still not, not even up to our, our current day yet, so let me fast forward to about where we are today. Stefan, take us into the future okay. where, what are we looking at? This is just before the year 2150, and this is the worst case. This is the, I guess, the business as usual scenario that, that most of the piece follows. Um, and this would be, this is right before it shifts off to um, an example of the other scenario. But uh, let me just play this is before 2150. So that's 2150. Was yeah. that the business as usual scenario? That was the business as usual scenario. Okay. And then is there an alternative scenario where the earth decarbonizes the economy and we avoid the worst consequences? There, there is. And in fact, right after, there's a part in the music right after 2150 where we, we, we drop down to that scenario just for, just for about a minute or so, which is the two-degree world, uh, essentially the Paris Agreement uh, world. We're looking to add a, a visceral element to climate literacy, to, to have people not, you know, in fact, one of our audience members has said that, told us that, that the, uh, through the music she was able to feel the issue in a visceral way that she could never understand. It had been abstract for her, for her before. And so that's what we're looking for is to sort of spark that insight that this is actually something that is personal to me that I can feel. And then a big part of our project uh, is not just to put on concerts. It's also, we've been, and, uh, we've been actually very actively building an action network uh, with existing NGOs, both on the climate literacy side, but also on the climate action side, to essentially be able to channel our audience's emotive energy directly into these partner organizations so that people, once they go through the experience, 
they don't have to go home alone and just sit there, um, but, but actually they can find ways to, to connect with other people, to learn more about the issue, to ask more questions, to build community around the issue. That's really why we exist, not just to put on concerts. Bill Collins, you know, is, it, uh, is there hope? Is there, you know, some people think that we're really not going to turn this around, that the two-degree scenario that's conveyed in this music is not really possible. I frankly find that to, uh, to be a rationalization for doing nothing. Any action is worthwhile. No action is insane. And so if we care, we, we are all morally bound to do as much as we can? This is the rationalization that we, you know, it may be difficult to hit two degrees since we shouldn't stop is exactly the same rationalization that you'll hear an alcoholic give for not kicking the habit. It is exactly the same rationalization and is equally indef as indefensible. Uh, no, this is, we are, we have an addiction. It's, it's like any other addiction. It's led to a great party. We're, we're facing it, to pursue this analogy a little bit further, we're facing the world's worst hangover. Um, be really smart to quit and to stop rationalizing. And as we close, your thoughts on, Stefan, art as part of social change? I think art has to be part of social change more than ever now. I think that uh, art has a huge role to play because art can can make people see things that otherwise might be hard to see. And, and I think now more than ever we need the creativity and there is so much brilliant creativity out there that I think in this project we also want to, our goal is to really leverage a lot of other brilliant, you know, sort of beyond the, the brilliant minds we've already leveraged in terms of our technology people and our composers and our musicians, we want to reach out and try to sort of open source that, that process so that we really can take advantage of all the brilliant minds out there who are very creative that can find new ways to express this and new ways to touch people because I think what really is important is that people feel this and that they're, they're touched by it. And I think if they're touched by it, then it'll be real for them and they'll be able to actually integrate it into their lives. And Bill, your, your closing thoughts on art, bridging art and science and social change. I think scientists realize that we uh, need to partner up to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, some really incredible partners have and will come from the artistic community. And I, the Climate Music Project is one of several uh, attempts to bridge that gap. I, I am really heartened by the success that we've had so far and look forward to many future successes. You've been listening to Climate One, hosted by Greg Dalton. Greg's guests today were artist and activist Ai Weiwei, Bill Collins of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and Stefan Crawford of the Climate Music Project. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows are available wherever you podcast and on our website, climateone.org. Please leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think about our conversations on energy, food, water, and more. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. 
Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio. Uh -huh.